0: Good morning. Well, today, do this to your head, kind of stick it on tight because I I intend to swirl it, spin it, should be spinning. And and because of that, I'm going to be methodical. There are some people that, uh, no names, my wife, that uh, tell me I talk too fast. Rush through, and she'll say, I'll go home and I'll hear lectures like, just because you get it doesn't mean that we all understand everything you're saying. You talk so fast. We're trying to keep up. Slow down. No amens? Good. (laughs) That is a fault of mine. I am always, I'm always open to loving criticism. I really am. I mean, if it's loving, there's some that just say, you stink. But this is a very important day when we come to this passage of Scripture. All Scripture is God-breathed, and it comes to us for our edification and for God's glory. And some just stand out amazing. And you're not going to see it when you read it, because 19 verse, chapter 19, verse 28, after he said all these things, he was going on ahead, going up to Jerusalem. That passage begins the Easter week. We're about, at this point, uh, six days before Jesus' death. That's where we are, six days. In fact, if you like to write in your Bible, you should write out there, Monday, March the 3rd, A.D. 33. That's the day. And it's important that you know that day, because I'm going to tell you, why this proves that Jesus of Nazareth is the Messiah. It's an amazing mathematical prophecy. Everything that since Luke chapter 9 verse 51 has led up to this day, he has set his mind to go to Jerusalem. He knows what's going to happen in Jerusalem. He is, as John the Baptist called him, the Lamb of God who takes away the sin of the world. John chapter 1, verse 29. That's who Jesus is. The lambs of the Old Testament atoned the, for the sins of Israel. Jesus is the Lamb of God who takes away the sin of the world. He is that man. That's the designation early in the first day of his ministry in John chapter 1, verse 29. And as he comes into the last week of his ministry, during the Christmas season, isn't that great? We're in the Christmas season talking about the Easter season. Those, those two go together like peanut butter and chocolate. So, after he'd said these things, after he had given the the parable of the minas, the money usage, uh, how those, some use what God has given them to further and to glorify God, others just don't do anything with it. Some are believers, some are not believers, as indicated by their actions. After he's converted, this uh, self righteous, pompous Jew named Zacchaeus brought this man to know Christ. His soul has been saved. It's indicated by how he gives up half of all his possessions and four times as much to the people that he has bilked. Right after he has given sight to a blind man named Bartimaeus, right after he has said that he's going to Jerusalem to die, be arrested to die, to be crucified, to be resurrected, to be ascended into heaven, and to return after he said that, he knows where he's going, we know that. That's right on the heels of after he told the rich guy who said, hey, I want to know how you can have eternal life. Jesus said, sell everything you have. Give it to the poor and come follow me. And the guy couldn't do it. Jesus has been saving souls and chasing people away just by simply giving them the truth up to this day. Many believe in him. His 12 disciples, well, minus one anyway, know that he is the Messiah. They believe in him, but they don't have all the information. When he comes into town that day on verse 28... Luke nineteen twenty eight. after he had said these things, those were the things he had said, the narrative continues, he was going on ahead, going up to Jerusalem. It doesn't say he's arrived there, but that's where he's going. In fact, if we look at the gospel of John, John gives us indications that the synoptics do not. The synoptics are Matthew, Mark, and Luke, and John is a bit unique. John gives us indicators that we don't get in the synoptics, for instance, when he raised Lazarus from the dead. You remember the town that Lazarus was raised in? It was the town of Bethany. And look, Jesus is approaching Bethany and Bethpage. It's actually pronounced Bethphage, but I'm going with Bethpage. It just flows a little bit better. He comes into the town where he had previously raised Lazarus from the dead, where he had made enemies among the Pharisees. Lazarus had been dead four days. Jesus stood outside of his tomb and said, Lazarus, come forth. He did. They unwrapped the, the wrappings around his body. He lived. You'd think the Pharisees who hated Jesus up to this point would say, wow, he must be the Messiah. But no, they plan now more than ever to kill him. And we have their conversation in the latter part of John chapter 11, led by the high priest of the day named Caiaphas. Kill him. Let's kill this guy who raises the dead. They're of the devil. And so they attempt to do it. Jesus goes away in John's gospel, goes into a little town called Ephraim, about 15 miles out. So when we put this chronology together, he's gone back out. Now he comes back into Jerusalem, and he is out at the town of Bethpage and Bethany. By the way, that's just two miles. Just stand on the Mount of Olives and look down the Mount of Olives. On the, on the, you look east, it's just desert beyond the Mount of Olives, was and is, and little towns there named Bethany and Bethpage. Bethpage is kind of on the, the slope of the Mount of Olives. I've been there four times myself. Jesus goes there, he's, he's known there. I mean, you're going to be known in a place where you raise a dead guy from the, from the grave, don't you think? People's going to know who, you're, who you are. So when he approaches Bethpage in Bethany near the Mount of Olives, if you stand on the Mount of Olives, you're essentially a stone's throw from Jerusalem. You're looking down into the city on this mountain, or this high hill is a better way of putting it. Note this, I want you to take your Bible, put one of your little ribbons there in Luke, and I want you to go over to the prophecy of Daniel. Now, if you don't know where Daniel is, take your Bible and just go to the center. Break it open. You'll probably come to to Proverbs or Psalms or Isaiah. If you come to any of those, you need to move to the right. You'll go, there's Psalms, there's Proverbs, uh, there's Ecclesiastes, there's the small book of uh, Solomon, and then you get Isaiah, Jeremiah, and then uh, Jeremiah writes a little small book called Lamentations, and then you're in Daniel. So if you get to Daniel, go to Daniel chapter 9. If you go to Ezekiel, you're too far. I'm sorry, Ezekiel is after Lamentations. Ezekiel, then Daniel. Forgive me. I just figured that out, you know, because I was turning there too. Ezekiel, then Daniel. Daniel chapter 9. Now, let me just briefly give you the context because we're in Daniel. We're in chapter 9, so we're out of a context. So let me just tell you briefly. Daniel... Is Next to the book of Genesis, Daniel is my favorite book in all the Old Testament. Uh, That's why I named my son Daniel. He is the greatest man next to Jesus in my view. Uh, I love not only the man, but the prophecy. I love the book. It's an amazing, powerful book. And this book changed my life, led me into the pulpit, caused me to become a preacher. It was so exciting to me to read through Daniel. Beyond this little boy being in the lion's den. By the way, he wasn't a little boy in the lion's den. He was about 80 in the lion's den, did you know that? except that doesn't translate well to children's books. Some old geezer. Not that anyone in 80 above is a geezer here. I didn't mean that. Ed, sorry, you know. <laughs> no, no. today's geezer is '95, '96, right? Daniel has been in captivity. He is a Jew. He was captured by the Babylonians under Nebuchadnezzar in five I'm sorry, in 605 B.C., He was taken from his homeland. He was born approximately 620 B.C., so he was about 15 years old when he was taken captive. And he was taken from Israel into Babylon, modern Iraq. He was taken away, and now he is away from home. He was a godly young 15-year-old. He was between the ages of 13 and 17, based upon the word that's designated for him. So we're going to put him at the, the prime age of 15 he was a godly young man who stuck to his guns. And even though Nebuchadnezzar and the Babylonians tried to Babylonize him and his three friends, Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego, their Jewish names are Hananiah, Azariah, and Mishael, they gave them different names. Daniel's name became, instead of God is my judge, Belteshazzar, named after pagan, a pagan god in Babylon. Well, Daniel wouldn't compromise And what was amazing is that this great king Nebuchadnezzar, known in extra-biblical history as one of the greatest kings in the history of the world, was impressed by Daniel, and equally impressed by Daniel's friends, and he made them co-regents. They ruled underneath him, not co-regents, but just underneath Nebuchadnezzar. So you have these young Jewish boys taken from their homeland in 605 BC, ruling in Babylon with Nebuchadnezzar, advising the king to the point where in Daniel chapter 4, it looks like Daniel actually leads King Nebuchadnezzar to know the one God, Yahweh. Daniel, while there, as he grew up around 550 B.C., after the, the Jewish kingdom had been obliterated, at least it, was, it went out of existence, essentially, their temple was gone in 586 B.C. So I'm giving you numbers. I'm going to be more deliberate. King Nebuchadnezzar came into Judea, and he took prisoners in 605 B.C. He came back. We're in B.C. because we're moved, our numbers are going to move in a different, different direction. He came back in 597 B.C. And he took Ezekiel. Ezekiel was one of those taken captive. He came back in 586 B.C. And he completely leveled the temple. So by 586 B.C. The temple in Jerusalem was gone. Now without a temple, Jews have no way of worship. They have no access to God. They must have a priesthood from the line of Levi and the priests who descend from Aaron, the brother of Moses, and they must have a temple. Otherwise, they cannot be Jews, not good Jews. And if they're not living in Israel and they're taken to another land, they are bereft of worship. God let them, God allowed this to happen to discipline them to take them out of their country. Daniel was a godly young man. And he was praying, and we know Ezekiel was praying and preaching to the people while in captivity. At a certain point, around 550 B.C., God gave Daniel an amazing prophecy that relates to our passage today. Around 550 B.C., that's about, what, 35 years after the Jewish temple has been gone. So keep in your mind, the Jewish temple and Judaism is gone. God is speaking to a man in Babylon named Daniel, or Belteshazzar. He tells him this in Daniel chapter 9, verse 24. I'm going to read 24 through 27. He says, 70 weeks have been decreed for your people and your holy city. Now, weeks in the Hebrew text, which is what this passage is written in. It's written in Hebrew. Chapters 2 through 7 are actually written in Aramaic, which I'm not good at. But this is Hebrew. 77s is what he's saying. 77s are decreed. Who are Daniel's people? Israel. Israel. Daniel is an Israelite. His people are Israel. Seventy-sevens. It would be seventy-sevens of years. The Jews thought in terms of sevens. You and I tend to think in decades. Ten years, a decade here, a decade there. Ten years ago, 20 years ago. We don't say about four. We don't say 14 years ago or 21 years ago, unless we're being precise, of course. They thought in terms of seven. They had a seven-day Sabbath, seventh-day Sabbath. They had a seventh-year Sabbath. Every seven years was a Sabbath year. And after seven of those, it comes to the 49th year. That's called the year of Jubilee. Very good class. This is how Jews thought in terms of sevens. So, it, although your Bible is going to say seven weeks, and we tend to think of that as a seven day week, it's literally 77s, and it's of years. So, 77s has to do with 490 years. If you wanted to translate that in your Bible, you could just put 490 years have been decreed for Israel. That's what it means. By the way, Daniel has been looking at the prophecies by 586 B.C. I'm sorry, by 550 B.C. when he's writing this roundabout. uh, He is looking at the time in which Israel has been in captivity. And he knows from Jeremiah's prophecies. Jeremiah said in Jeremiah chapter 25 and in Jeremiah chapter 29 that 70 years the Israelites would be in captivity. Daniel knew how long. That they would be there. He knows he's coming to the end or near to the end of that 70 years. And he's praying, Lord, you said 70 years, so let it be. God is going to say, okay, along the lines of, yes, 70 years were decreed, but it's going to be 70 times 7 until I'm through working with Israel. That has to do with our own present day news in Israel. So, here's what it is. The the decree is 70 weeks or 490 years have been decreed for your people, that is for Israel, and for your holy city, that is Jerusalem. Jerusalem in its specific locality. Not Rome, not Houston, Jerusalem. So, we see that God has said, here's the decree. 490 years have been decreed for Israel and your holy city, Jerusalem. It will do six things. The first three have to do with the first coming of Christ. The second three have to do with the second coming of Christ or their Messiah. It's going to finish the transgression, to make an end of sin, and to make an atonement for iniquity. When Christ came, he dealt with all of these as it relates to Israel. We say to finish the transgression, that's going to bring Israel's sin to a close. To make an end of sin, they will stop sinning. And to make atonement for their iniquity, that's the, the death of a lamb, they would have thought, but it will be the death of their Messiah. The next three, it will bring in everlasting righteousness. This is the second coming of their Messiah, the millennial kingdom we call it. It will seal up vision and prophecy. That means we won't need scriptural truth anymore. We won't need prophecy to tell us what's going to happen. It will have all happened. And to anoint the most holy, literally a most holy or the most holy, either it has to do with their king Or the holy place, the millennial temple that Ezekiel describes in chapters 40 to 48. One or both. That's what's going to happen. So all he's saying is there are 40 years from from a particular time, Daniel, are decreed for your people, Israel, and the holy city of Jerusalem. And this is what it's going to do. It's going to bring it all to summation in 490 years. That's great. That's easy enough. Your head's not spinning yet. The question is, when does it begin? When will we be able to figure this out? So he tells him in verse 25, so you, that is Daniel, you are to know and discern that from the issuing of a decree to restore and rebuild Jerusalem until the Messiah, the Prince, there will be seven weeks and 62 weeks. All right. This is where you start going, wait a minute. Did I come to church today or a class? You came to church and it's an introductory class to bring us to conclusion to this sermon. You with me? Are you having fun? No, you're not. It's not fun. You can take this out and have a lot of fun watching people's eyes go, wait, what? You are to know and discern that from the issuing of a decree, it's going to happen at an issuing of a decree to restore and rebuild Jerusalem. Remember I told you, what's Jerusalem look like in Daniel's day at this point? It's gone. It's obliterated. The temple's gone. So Daniel knows the temple needs to be restored. He knows Israel needs to be restored. He knows that the people... Of Israel, who are in Babylonian exile, are looking for their city to be rebuilt, and Daniel is getting that prophecy from the issuing of a decree. When did that decree go out? Okay, now I'm not going to go into all the details. I'm going to bring you to the conclusion. But that, that went out. You can write this in your Bible. In 444 BC, on March the fifth, on 444 BC, March fifth. It's the twentieth year. ...of a man named Artaxerxes, king of Persia. The 20th year, we know he began his reign in 465 B.C. 20 years later would be 445 B.C. So why do I say 444 B.C.? Well, glad you asked. It's an old book you should have in your library. Uh, It was written about 1880. It's called The Coming Prince. It's by a man named Sir Robert Anderson... So Robert Anderson did some amazing calculations that all of us who study Daniel are grateful for. And Anderson came up studying Daniel, knowing that Artaxerxes I became king in 465 BC. And so in his 20th year, in fact, we know it's his 20th year because we know when the decree went out because when we read the book of Nehemiah, chapter two, we know that Nehemiah is a cupbearer to the king. And Nehemiah is very down that the the, The city of Israel, the city of Jerusalem, I should say, is still wiped out. Their temple has been rebuilt, but the city is wiped out. The walls are down. And Nehemiah complains to the king, and the king Artaxerxes says, then Nehemiah, go rebuild it. I'll commission you to rebuild it. And we're told in Nehemiah chapter 2 that happened in the 20th year of Artaxerxes. So if he began reigning in 465 B.C., his 20th year is 445 B.C. So go in 445 B.C. There's the decree. And Sir Robert Anderson says it was 445 B.C. Later on, one of my professors at Dallas Seminary came along in 1973. His name is Harold Honer. Harold Honer wrote the chronological aspects of the life of Christ. And he said, Sir Robert Anderson's calculations are good, but he's off by one year. Why one year? One year is going to mess everything up. Well, that one year is when a king, say if a king would become king in October... Uh, dad died and he's now the king, he's the successor, uh, you'd think that the, day, the next day that he would become king. And he did. He would reign, but his calculations as being a king wouldn't happen for an entire year. It's called the year of accession for a king. And so if that being the case, all the chronology changes from 445 B.C. to a decree written in 444 B.C. That's why in some of your study Bibles, you'll see that your dates, the dates that I give you for this, are going to be off by a little bit. For instance, even the John MacArthur study Bible believes that Jesus Jesus died in the year AD 30. I don't buy AD 30. It's AD 33. Now, it's either AD 30 or AD 33, depending upon which calculations you get. You're lucky enough to come to this church where you get the right ones. What's funny is that MacArthur used to think that. He was very uh, very much into the, the 444, and then for some reason now, without explanation, he goes back to the 445, probably because he, already, he had already written a study Bible and didn't want to change it, but no disrespect, he's my hero, and uh, I, I could, couldn't hold a candle to that man anyway, but, so it's kind of arrogant to say I disagree, but really, I'm just with Harold Honer. I like Harold better than Sir Robert Anderson. That's all it is, and I firmly believe it, and I want to tell you why I believe it. I believe it because on 444 B.C., that decree went out. And if Daniel said, or if God told Daniel that there would be 77s or 490 years, then we know that that 490 years began when a decree went out. So all we have to do is take the date of the decree and begin to count down these 490 years. Okay. Problem number one with it is that it says... Again, verse 25, you are to know and discern that from the issuing of a decree to restore and rebuild Jerusalem, that's what Artaxerxes gave, Nehemiah, go restore Jerusalem and rebuild it, until the Messiah, so it would be from 444 BC when the city went under destruction, until the days of the Messiah. We believe that's Jesus of Nazareth. Today we're going to determine if it is, actually. Until that day, how long would pass? Until the Messiah the Prince, there will be seven weeks, that's 49 years, and 62 weeks, that's another 434 years, for a total of 483 years. Are you still with me? I don't want to catch you underneath the pews begging God for mercy here. In other words, a decree goes out in 444 BC. Of those 490 years or 70 weeks, 69 of those weeks will pass, and the Messiah the Prince will appear and be cut off. So again, all we have to do is determine when that decree was given. We know it, 444 B.C., March 5th. And we know it. We we count those days down, 483 years. What do we get? March 30th, A.D. 33, the day Jesus came into Jerusalem. How are you going to argue with that? Take that to a Jewish person. That's just crunching numbers. I didn't jump through any hoops. I didn't predict the end of the world. All I showed you was what Daniel was given, the prophecy was given, 490 years, 483 of them will pass, and the Messiah, the Prince, will come. So at the end of 483 years, what amazing event happened? A carpenter from Nazareth who has been three and a half years in ministry, healing the sick, giving sight to the blind, giving audibility to the deaf, making people who can't walk, walk, jump up and and jump around, raising the dead, saving sinners. That guy happened to walk into town. No, I was wrong when I said that. He didn't walk into town. If he'd have walked into town, he wouldn't be the Messiah. He rode into town on a donkey, on a colt. See, the Messiah, if he doesn't ride into town, he ain't the Messiah. Why? Because Zechariah 9, 9 said he has to ride in on a donkey. Daniel chapter 9, verses 24, 25, 26 said he's got to come in on this day at that time. Now, we'll get to it, but let me finish Daniel here. He says after the seven weeks and the 62 weeks, which is 469 of the uh, 70 weeks, It, that is Jerusalem, will be built again. It was. With plaza and moat. That would be a defense system. Even in times of distress. Well, Nehemiah, when he rebuilt those walls, had all kinds of flack from the neighboring nations. And although he finished that wall in 52 days, it was years before the city was actually completed. And there was a defense system, a plaza and moat. Plaza has to do with what's inside the city, the beautification of inside the city. A moat would be a trench-like Like a defense system outside, it would be done in times of distress. We know Israel rebuilt in great times of distress. Then after the 62 weeks, that's in addition to the seven weeks that preceded it, then after the 62 weeks, the Messiah will be cut off. Well, we know that when Jesus came into town, and we'll see today from today's passage, people hailed him as this great king. Four days later, they killed him. They cut him off. After that 69th week, he will be cut off and have nothing. And the people of the prince who is to come will destroy the city. That happened in A.D. 70 and the sanctuary because the sanctuary was rebuilt and it was torn apart in A.D. 70. When you go look at the temple today or where the temple once stood, you see all the remnants of the the building blocks that once made that temple. And its end will come with a flood. Even to the end, there will be war. Desolations are determined. Okay, so we've got 69 of the 70. What about that last one that's been decreed for Daniel's people, Israel, for Jerusalem, that capital city? Well, the last week comes in in verse 27. And he, he is the the context. I just talked about the prince who will come. He, we know this, he as a future man, we call the Antichrist, the lawless one, Paul calls him. He will make a firm covenant with the many for one week. That's the one week remaining. But in the middle of the week, you will put a stop to sacrifice. Well, what do you need to have to have a sacrifice in Israel? Got to have a temple. Got to have a priesthood. Well, that temple's not there even today. And if that week hasn't been fulfilled, then we awake, we premillennialists believe that the Bible is God's word. It's meant to be taken Literally. So if the 69 weeks happened literally to the fact that our Messiah came and was cut off, well, then the last week, that must mean that there's going to be a man that's going to rise up. He's going to make a firm covenant. That is a promise, a treaty of some sort with Israel, allow them to rebuild their temple. In the middle of that one week, that would be three and a half years. For the one week is seven years. And we'll put an end, a stop to the sacrifice. And grain offering. And on the wing of abominations will come one who makes desolate. In other words, he's going to destroy everything until a complete destruction. One that is decreed is poured out on the one who makes desolate. That means he's going to die too. That prince who is to come. So that one week stands out from the 69 weeks. So the 69th week came up to the point where the Messiah was cut off. We know that to be Jesus. He was cut off. We know there's no, where Israel was ceased to be a nation in AD 135. Their temple was destroyed in AD 70. Uh, they got their name back and a place to dwell called their homeland in 1948 what's the biggest site in Israel that creates the most tension it's called the Temple Mount the Temple Mount right there where the Dome of the Rock sits and Al-Aqsa Mosque adjacent to it that whole area is the place where Abraham took Isaac where God provided a substitute sacrifice the place where Solomon built the first temple The place that was destroyed by Nebuchadnezzar, that was rebuilt by Zerubbabel and beautified by Herod the Great, that was destroyed later by the Romans, hasn't been rebuilt since, and the very place that says will be rebuilt. So the events that are transpiring now, and I don't know how, are moving towards Israel rebuilding their temple on that spot, seeing a world leader come up and make a covenant with them and then break it in the middle of that time And then there's all-out destruction to the end of that seventh week. And by the time that last seven years is over, the 490 years are over. And those six things that we read in in verse 24 all come to pass. Do you see the beauty of Daniel? Even if you haven't followed everything I've said, maybe I lost you back in the first sentence of verse 24. Go read it again. Pick up a study Bible. Read the commentaries that are coming this week on the blog read dig in let your soul be filled with what God promised to do and is doing especially today we live in this world we're going Lord we don't know what's happening and God's answer is don't worry I do I got this don't you love it when somebody has it I got this so let's go back to Luke Monday Monday March the 30th, A.D. 33 is 483 years after Artaxerxes' decree to restore and rebuild Jerusalem. 483 years later, Jesus walks in. That doesn't surprise us. We know he's the Messiah. He approached Bethpage and Bethany near the mount that is called Olivet. And he sent two of the disciples saying, go into the village ahead of you. There you will enter. You will find a colt tied on which no one has ever set. Untie it. Bring it here. Now remember, Jesus is known in Bethany. He's raised Lazarus from the dead. Everyone knows him. The Jews who were there to see it have now issued a death warrant for Jesus because they saw what happened in Bethany. Jesus just says, it's like he says, sneak into town, grab me a horse and, or a colt and, and, and sneak out. It's kind of like that's what he's saying. But he's not. Because he gives, he, he anticipates that someone might ask if two guys just go in and say, "Hey, this is the colt we want, and take it." If anyone asks you why are you untying it, you shall say, "The Lord has need of it." Okay. So if someone says, "Hey, why are you guys untying this colt?" In fact, Matthew says it didn't. They didn't just untie a colt, but they untied the donkey, the mother of the colt, which probably means the colt wasn't going anywhere without mama. Luke only says that he untied the colt. No one has ever sat untie it bring it here if anyone asks you tell them the Lord has need of it so they were to say the two disciples and their unnamed they would go in town and someone might say hey hey what are you guys doing hey well I'm Andrew I'm John we don't know which ones they were doesn't say which ones uh, and Jesus the Lord needs it and they would have said oh fine we know who the Lord is he raised Lazarus from the dead he is friends with Mary and Martha who live here Mary Martha and Lazarus are two sisters and a brother lived in Bethany so they would have known the Lord Jesus said, either told someone secretly, hey, I'm gonna, I want this colt, let him have it, or all the disciples had to say is the Lord has need of it. We see that Jesus with this amazing insight. Now, a good friend of mine uh, told me, he said, I thought, we were talking about this when we were in Israel. He said, I thought Jesus did this in Capernaum. Now, Capernaum is a long ways away. It's in Galilee. And I said, no, he did this on the Mount of Olives just because we were standing on the Mount of Olives and I was talking to him. I was telling the the Bible study we were having that day. I said, no, this is right where Jesus said, hey, guys, go go down to that village, just right down the Mount of Olives and bring me a colt. So it happened right there, right outside of Jerusalem. Verse 32, so they went out, they went away, they found it just as he was told. And as they were untying the colt, its owner said to them, why are you untying the colt? They said, the Lord has need of it. There's a lot of things you could put in the Bible, and uh, that doesn't seem to necessarily be in there. But what the very least we can see is Jesus could see in his omniscience, in his all-knowing ability. Guys, go down and get this colt. If anyone asks, tell them the Lord needs it. I know it. I'm going to tell you this. This is what they're going to say. You're going to bring it here. Jesus knows everything that's happening to him. None of this is happening willy-nilly. Is that okay to say in church, Willy-nilly. He knows it. He's predicted. Remember, he said what was going to happen to him back in chapter 18, verses 31 to 33. Guys, I'm going to Jerusalem. I'm going to be arrested. They're going to kill me, and I'm going to rise three days later. He knows it. Liberal theologians hate this. They hate it. In fact, they say, no, that's not what Jesus said. That shouldn't be in there. That was written later. Because if Jesus knows what's going to happen, then that means he's God. That He's the Messiah. And no liberal wants Jesus to be the Messiah if he is, then they have to surrender to him. Isn't that the point? Verse 35, so they brought it, they brought it to Jesus. That would be the colt. And they threw their coats on the colt and put Jesus on it. Remember, Jesus can't walk into town. You have your Bible. Let me just read it. Zechariah is a little harder to find if you don't know. I'm going to read Zechariah nine. 9. Uh, just to tell you what I'm talking about when I say that he's got to come into town on a cold. Zechariah 9.9 says this, Rejoice greatly, O daughter of Zion. Seems like we just sang that song. Rejoice, rejoice, Emmanuel has come to thee, O Israel. Isn't that beautiful? Rejoice. Maybe that's an old song you've sung, and you've never thought about it, but it's Rejoice, Israel, your king has come. Rejoice greatly, O daughter of Zion. That's just a, a figure of speech for Israel. You're the daughter of Zion. Shout in triumph, O daughter of Jerusalem. Behold, your king is coming to you. He is riding a big white horse with a sword at. No, that's not what it says. Behold, your king is coming to you. He is just and endowed with salvation, humble and mounted on a donkey, even the colt, the foal of a donkey. This is not a war horse. This is not a a big, huge, powerful donkey. It's the colt, one no one's ever ridden on. It's a pony, if you will. Jesus comes riding in in fulfillment of this because the Messiah had to. Incidentally, when does he come in on the war horse? Revelation chapter 19 verse 11 has him coming in on the white horse. Because his second coming, he comes as that warrior to mete out his punishment for all who have refused to submit to him as Lord and God. Here he comes as this, the same way he was born in humility, laid in a manger. He comes in this great humility on a colt. Full of a donkey the people are throwing their coats on the back of it verse 36 as they was going they were spreading their coats on the road this is what you did for a monarch this is what the people believe he's the king he's coming into jerusalem he's going to overthrow rome they're throwing their coats on the ground and on the donkey so that jesus could sit on it and on the ground so that he can go forth and shows respect and adoration we'll see how fickle they were by week's end Spreading their coats on the road. In fact, John's gospel says they were waving palm branches. It's another way that you honor a king. In Revelation chapter 7, what, what is the, the, the big, huge company doing with, with Jesus as he's come the second time? Waving palm branches. Hailing their king. Verse 37. As soon as he was approaching near the descent of the Mount of Olives so he's come to the very end when you come to the descent of the Mount of Olives you're in the the garden of Gethsemane and you are just right you're in Jerusalem when they got there the whole crowd of the disciples began to praise God joyfully with a loud voice for the miracles which they had seen so there's a group among this crowd they think they know who Jesus is. Again, it would be a beautiful story of salvation if we didn't know that these are the same group that in, in four days are shouting for him to be crucified. Crucify! Crucify! They were disappointed in Jesus. Maybe some of you have been disappointed in Jesus. You were fed a false view of Jesus. You were told that he's the, the end of all your problems. That if you believe in Jesus, you'll be healthy and wealthy. And you're neither wealthy nor healthy. And you're wondering, why are these things happening to me? I became a Christian. I thought God was going to um, relieve me of all of this. That's why people abandon their faith. They've had enough. Even preachers. There's too many stories of preachers out there who come to the pulpit and think that God is going to do this, this, and this because of what they do. And they're disappointed. They're disappointed in Jesus. It didn't happen the way they thought it would unfold. The people are thinking Jesus is going to come to town. He's going to reaffirm the role of Israel. He's going to sit on David's throne, which is in Jerusalem. He's the man. And so at this point, they're all with a loud voice crying out, and they're shouting, verse 38. The tense of that verb means it's ongoing. Blessed is the king who comes in the name of the Lord. It's a quote from Psalm 118, verse 26. Blessed is the king. They're calling him the king. Matthew's gospel adds that he's the son of David. If you're the son of David, you are the prophesied king. He's come in the name of the Lord. By the way, the word Lord there is, the, is in all caps. That means the Hebrew word for it is Yahweh, the, the covenant personal name of God. He comes in the name of God. He's the king. He's the one who will sit on David's throne. He is God. Blessed is he. And, uh Matthew and Mark use the word Hosanna. Hosanna, which is not a name, by the way. It's a, it's a praise. It means save now. Uh, salvation in the highest. Hosanna, save now. Salvation in the highest. Son of David, blessed is the king. And then he says, peace in heaven. Or they say, peace in heaven and glory in the highest. Peace in heaven. They don't say peace on earth, which, by the way, if we look back at Luke chapter 2, verse 14, when Jesus was born, what did the, the shepherds say? Peace on earth. Or the, the angels told the shepherds, peace on earth. And goodwill towards those whom God favors. Here it's peace in heaven. There's peace in heaven. The, when there's peace in heaven, there's peace on earth. Glory in the highest. It looks like they get it, don't they? You should write outside of your Bible there, crucify, crucify because by Luke 23, that's what they're calling for. You see, that's what people do one day. They show up to church, they sing a song, they go home say, Jesus, he's the man. He's my savior, I love him. Then someone in their family gets sick and they die. And something happens, they lose their job and life takes a turn for the worse for them and they wonder where God is. and They're through with God and they, they decide that prayer doesn't work, God isn't there. He disappointed me. They play the victim. A lot of people out there playing, playing the victim. God took someone they loved, and so they're going to be angry with God. They're going to stop worshiping him. They're going to show him the Almighty Creator of heaven and earth who does nothing wrong. You see, folks, we don't get everything we want. We don't get to tell God, here's what we want. So we're turning this in, stamp of approval. You give what we want because we prayed in Jesus' name. No. God says, I'm God. Follow me, let things do and be as I say they are to do and be. You trust me. We are too often trying to be God, are we not? One of my favorite shows in the 80s when I was a kid was Highway to Heaven. Remember Highway to Heaven? Michael Landon, Victor French. Michael Landon was an angel in the movie, in the show. He was an angel, so everything good happened to him, and Victor French was not. He was a man, and and, uh, there was one occasion in the show, I'll never forget. It's probably the one episode I remember where things just weren't happening the way Victor French thought they should go. There were babies dying or something like that, and they called God the boss. He was the boss, and Michael Landon, you know, did the boss's bidding. He did God's bidding. Well, Victor French didn't always like it, and he said, if I can only be the boss for a day, let me be a boss for the, the boss for the day. And Michael Landon looks to heaven. Okay. Kind of like Clarence in It's a Wonderful Life. And they give Victor French the boss title for the day. He gets to be God for the day. And now things get to go his way, the way he wants it to go, and everything goes to pot. Not that his ideas were evil. They just weren't God's. And that impressed me. Probably, I don't know, maybe I was 13, 14 years old, maybe younger than that. I'll never forget that scene because it taught me Lance, you are not God. Don't try to foist upon God your will. What you think is good and what you think should be, you are not the Almighty. Can you get that today if you don't already have it? Let God be God. Things happen that hurt us that we don't think should have happened. But God is on his throne. He's never asleep. Everything unfolds just the way he would have it. The day of our birth, the day of our death, the day that our Lord walked into Jerusalem, seemingly, you know, my, uh, Christopher Hitchens is a, the late Englishman uh, atheist, uh, and, and he always tried to make a big deal about how uh, Israel is just some pipsqueak, nowhere-nothing place. Well, what isn't? I mean, he's thinking no way God would be born in that place. But Did he want him born in New York City? As an Englishman, did he want him born in London? I mean, which place is good enough? Jesus was born in not just in Israel, but in Bethlehem. No one lived in Bethlehem. The, the, the very word means a house of bread. No one lived there. It's not a wasn't a thriving metropolis then. It isn't now. In humility, he was born in a perhaps a cave or maybe in the out in the open. We don't have any place to put him. Here clear all the slop out of that feeding trough, throw some hay down, and we'll put the God of all creation in there. Our Lord came in humility. Christopher Hitchens thought it should be this way if he is who he says. You and I say it should be this way if God is who he is. No, God is who he is. He's right, and you and I are wrong. You get that down, folks. You can live a peaceful life knowing God is in control. And so what they love on this day, they'll call for his death four days later. Now, in the midst of this, verse 39, or the Pharisees who have never been big fans of Jesus, verse 39, some of the Pharisees in the crowd, mind you, the whole context is this shouting, continual shouting and loud voices, blessed be the king who comes in the name of the Lord, peace in heaven and glory in the highest. Some of the Pharisees in the crowd said to him, teacher, rebuke your disciples, tell them to hush, they are calling you God. You can't let them do that. Remember, up to this time, Jesus will perform miracles, and he'll tell people, don't go tell anybody. Keep this to yourself. Go show yourself to the priest. Don't go tell anybody. Jesus is not trying to keep his identity a secret. He's just trying to be able to walk freely around Israel. People go off and tell it anyway. But he's saying, look, let's keep this on the, on the down low. But now, they're telling him, keep it down, and Jesus, is, does, he doesn't say, "Yeah, you're right, we need to keep this down that I'm God. We don't want the whole world to know that. It's just the opposite now. Now it's, no. Verse 40, Jesus answered and said, I tell you, if these become silent, (laughs) the stones will cry out. The stones will cry out. I started thinking, I I don't know why, I just have this curse, but every time I, I, I often think, if I was a rock star, which I clearly am not, and I wanted to, to name the title of my band, it would be, not the Rolling Stones, they're already there. It would be The Stones. And my first album would be, They Cry Out. Now, if I only had the talent to make that work, I could go on to another career. Jesus answered, I tell you, if I shut these people up, Pharisees, the stones I created, the trees out there, the mountains, they would proclaim it. You can't keep who I am a secret. They're not going to shut up, and I'm not going to tell them to shut up. I don't think God ever says, okay, turn it down. The worship is a little little too much. I get it. No, he never does that. And you don't even have to carry a good tune, which is really good news for many of you. If God would have wanted you to carry a good tune, he'd have given you a good tuner. You know, you know you're the type, because while you sing, people kind of always get given it this. Or if you see somebody doing this a lot while you're singing, they're talking to the neighbor going, I wish they could sing. So if you see anybody doing that, you know, while you're singing, you know you're probably not singing. But just keep singing louder, all the louder. Because God is not interested in those who carry great tunes like our singers up here. Shout it. No cacophony of sounds. Just shout it if you believe it. Only if you believe it. Don't play the hypocrite. Jesus came into town on the day God designated for him to come in. Daniel's prophecy says it. He didn't didn't walk in, he rode in, just as Zechariah said. He descended from Abraham, whom God made his covenant with. He descended from Abraham's great-grandson, Judah, whom God made the covenant with. He descended from uh, his father, David, who descended from Abraham, Isaac, Jacob, Judah, David a thousand years later Jesus he was born in the town of Bethlehem as prophesied 700 years before it was he was born of a virgin prophesied 700 years before that happened in Isaiah 7 by the way the Bethlehem is Micah 5 2 if you need to look it up from Abraham Isaac Jacob Judah David the tribe the people the location the means through the Holy Spirit through a virgin He said, I came to set captives free. I came to set people free from their bondage. He did just that. He forgave sins. He received and accepted worship. He came down into town. He came into town on the day a prophet said he would over 500 years prior. He fulfills this amazing prophecy that we read in Isaiah chapter 53. and You think to yourself like I do. How do Jews reject their Messiah? How can you? We were in Israel this past year, and we had a, a wonderful tour guide. We loved her then. We love her now. All of us who went on that trip continue to pray for her. Sharon, and she told me from the outset. I said, look, we're a Bible-believing church. She said, well, I respect the Bible. She said, you're not going to offend me. Okay, good. Yes, we will, but good. If she was offended, she never showed it. I pointed my bony finger at her on several occasions and told her now that she's getting the truth, she will be held that much more accountable for not believing. She accepted that. I wasn't doing it sarcastically or out of anything other than my love for her. And I left the same way my compatriots left, going, how can this person not get it? Their own scriptures point to Jesus of Nazareth as the Messiah. Yet to say the name Jesus in Israel is to incur wrath from Jews. They don't want to hear about Yeshua, Jesus. They think he's Italian. Not that there's anything wrong with being Italian, but they think he's Catholic. Jesus is from the tribe of Judah. All converted Jews who finally come to know Jesus as the Messiah are most impressed by Matthew chapter 1 and this long genealogy where they see Jesus as actually a Jew. Descended from their great patriot or patriarch hero, Abraham, Isaac, Jacob, David. When they realize that, they say, wait a minute. We'll read the New Testament. Some of them come to know Christ as a result. So why don't they? forget why don't they why don't you you say well I believe Jesus is do you you believe he's the Messiah you believe he's the Christ let me tell you what I believe I believe that that there is a devil he's called Satan it's really just a a word used it means the accuser I believe there's Satan the devil that old serpent of old the most wicked of all beings ever created. I believe. I believe he is powerful. He has done some powerful and mighty things and he will do great and mighty things in the future. I believe that. Does that make me a Satanist? I believe in him. No, it doesn't, does it? Because I will not submit to him. The same is true with your quote-unquote belief of Jesus. You can believe all you want about Jesus. The devil believes all those things, even more so than you. But just because you believe about Jesus doesn't make you a Christian. Any more so than me believing about the devil makes me a Satanist. Well, what makes me a Christian? Believe in the Lord Jesus Christ. Submit to Him as God. Blessed is he who comes in the name of the Lord. There is salvation in no one else. We've seen all the evidence that Jesus preaches up to this point. Those who are given the minas, the minas in chapter 19 there, they put it to work. Jesus said, if you don't love your your me more than your own family, you cannot be my follower. If you don't take up your cross daily, you cannot be my follower. It's not just something you say, yeah, I believe that. Yes, that's where it begins. But if you truly believe it, you will live it. And if you don't live it, you are showing the rotten fruit that you don't really believe it. We live in a world where Christianity has become, even in what's left of good churches, it's preached as, hey, believe and you're in. Once saved, always saved. I believe in once saved, always saved. But I just don't believe that they're actually saving people. I hear of revivals in Africa. Were there more Christians than not? And then I see the preachers that are preaching, and I go, no, they're not. That's not Christ. That's not the Jesus of the Bible. What about you? Believe in the Lord Jesus Christ, and you shall be saved. But what does it mean to believe? Submit your life to him. He is king. Bow your knee to him. Repent of your sins, and don't go back to them give of yourself, of your life, your service, your money. Give. These things don't make you a Christian. They are the fruit of what it means to be a Christian. Jesus is the Christ. The Christ has come. We'll celebrate his birth in a couple of weeks. We're celebrating his death. It's going to take me up to the day of Easter. Isn't it amazing that I say, I think it's amazing is that I didn't even plan this, but if I continue this verse by verse through, I'll be on the resurrection on Easter Sunday. How about that? It means I can't get sick one single day. If I get sick, we're going to miss it. We're going to be awful weak. Can't have that. So clearly that's what God wants. No, hey, I might die. You guys might make fun of me. Our last preacher thought he was going to be here to preach the resurrection. God is in control. I, I hope you're saying that. I want to be there. But but I'm looking forward to being here to do that Believe in the Lord folks Jesus Christ is his name He's the Messiah There is no other There cannot be another We are not awaiting another Messiah He's already been here and he's coming back Believe and you shall be saved Let's pray Lord thank you You've made it very clear in your word Thank you Thank you We don't have to live in, in any kind of fear That you are not the Messiah There is no one who fits any of these these prophecies. None. There might have been people born in Bethlehem, but did they die for our sins and be raised to eternal life? Did did they walk into town or did they ride into town on a donkey? Were they born of a virgin? Were they from the line of Abraham, Isaac, Jacob, Judah, David? Only one. You've made it clear. Thank you. For those here today who still need convincing, that's your job, Lord. Only you can Take off the blinders. Remove them. Allow everyone to believe who hears the gospel. Our Jewish brothers and sisters. Our sister Sharon in Israel. For the peace of Jerusalem. That day when you arrive and bring eternal peace to that city. And you will arrive with us, your people. Lord, I pray that this lofty, amazing fulfillment That you've said you would do we know you will as we await its fulfillment may we be found faithful faithful in our marriages faithful in our singleness faithful in our giving faithful in our worship may you arrive to find us faithful working through our problems praying and on our knees submitting ourselves to you as lord and god because that's who you are May the light of Jesus shine through us in this dark world so brightly that no one misses Jesus after simply meeting us. May you flow through us so freely. This we pray in Jesus' name. Amen. My friends, Merry Christmas. Have a wonderful day. May God bless you. You've been listening to a sermon by Dr. Lance Walde, Senior Pastor of Harvest Bible Church in Cypress, Texas.